Milk Duds Podcast, Episode 5, Accountability. Welcome to Season 1, Week 5 of the Milk Duds Podcast. You see our boy Cam Newton, uh, Atlanta born and raised, is now a New England Patriots. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? I think there's a lot of thoughts, right? I mean, it's, it's strange, man. League MVP, R- Richard Sherman pointed this out, right? League MVP having trouble finding a, a soft landing and ends up signing for league minimum plus incentives. I mean, that's that's a little strange, man. Brock Osweiler was the quarterback of my Denver Broncos. <laughs> he got paid by them and then got paid by Houston. And so when you see that, it's like, you know, Cam, by, by no means do I think he is top three or top five or I mean I don't know where you'd rank him. I don't I don't know that that's the purpose of of this conversation here. Uh, but again, league MVP, somebody uh, who, with the right complement of uh, teammates, could do some damage if you decide, hey, look, this is what we're gonna do. And then, you know, I just I don't know. It's just it's just strange, man. You know, a hundred million dollar man, uh, league MVP. You know, basically fighting for his NFL life. I I I can see that, but I can also see that we live in an era right now in football and professional football where athletic quarterbacks right now are the norm rather than the exception. So it makes Cam Newton's skill set. Uh, not as attractive right now for most NFL teams because I would say at least 10 quarters coming out in the draft were, were, were dual threat options, uh, being throwing and passing, and the college version of the teams that they played for, they were a lot more efficient than Cam was when he won his Heisman year. So you're looking at that in, in addition to the fact that Cam has had and he had several injury issues for the last several years because the 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 let's be honest the dual threat option of his attack his legs were probably the most potent aspect of his game and that led him to be hit a lot more often than his quarterback peers so what are you more likely to do as a veteran season NFL franchise get something new off the shelf or pay top dollar for somebody who was at the top, but you have doubts about their durability. So well, do you think- there, are, there are a lot of things coming in mind of that. I think the other part is, you know, if he had signed with any other team for the league minimum, it would have been a slap in the face. But this is these are the New, New England Patriots. I mean, they basically told Tom Brady, who was the greatest quarterback of all time, to kick rocks. So for them to sign him to a league minimum, is not as big of a slap in the face as telling your the, the greatest quarterback of all time, the most decorated quarterback in the history of NFL football to kick rocks. And looking at that and knowing the potential of how uh, Bill Belichick can use him. Oh my gosh. And how he can use the, the new England Patriots to rehab his career. I honestly think, this is a one-year tryout for a max deal for him uh, elsewhere. So 
I think it's a win-win for Cam. A lot of money and go nowhere going to somewhere like the New England Patriots for a little bit of money has more bang for his buck. Heck yeah. Like imagine what it would be like if he went to the if he went Falcons. to the Washington Redskins, <laughs> bro. Or if he went to the Giants. Don't talk about the Falcons like that, bro. You uh you I will pull up on you. You get you get sensitive about, about them dirty birds, man. Hey, I'm sensitive about all my hometown teams. Cause like like CeeLo, CeeLo Goody said it best. You welcome to come, you welcome to stay, but any disrespect, we will make your ass fly away. Mm. So that's all I gotta say <laughs> about that. In that so, order. Anyway, to God. <laughs> exactly. I'm from the dirty, the filthy, nasty, dirty south. Now, uh, as as Jay had alluded to, I really feel like, I mean, I think it's a good look for him to go to New England. I still don't like New England being a, a Philadelphia Eagles fan. They cheated us in 2004, um, and I'll never forget that. But man, I mean, who's your head coach? Who was my head coach in 2004? Yeah. Andy Reid. Andy Reid. Andy Reid. Okay. He just got a ring. Yeah, yeah. That, I mean. Thank God. I was praying for him because I'm like, yo, this dude is never going to live down to, you know, what's right. the dead big game thing. Because he kind of – He's he terrible does. in the fourth quarter, terrible with clock management. That's a whole another topic for another day. Um, but I feel like uh, league minimum, though, like they couldn't squeeze out a couple more dollars. But that's – But this is the New England Patriots, bro. Yep, they but, they underpay all their players, dog. Especially they when they're black and, and they're a quarterback. They're notorious. No, not even when they're black. They underpaid Gronkowski, and they everybody everybody, everybody looked at Gronkowski as the the greatest tight end possibly ever. They have no. They have been notorious for underplaying all their players, and the reason they can get away with it is every other year they're in the Super Bowl. So it's not an individual player; it's the system, and and players know that. That's why AB wanted to go there. With I mean, look, look. New England, I think, is no doubt a great place to go if you need to rehab, to rehab your, career. your career. For sure. If you want to win, for sure. Uh, I mean, we saw what happened with Jacoby Brissett. So you're right. telling me that Cam cannot do the same or better? Right. Belichick? I mean, the only my only my only issue is not that New England – uh, paid them what they paid them per se. It was just that I felt that there were other opportunities in other places where maybe they should have driven up the price a little bit. I mean, just just being a league, a former league MVP. That's that's just my that's my only take. It's not really substantive, but yeah, because I cover I cover why it's not substantive. How do you think Boston's going to deal with a black quarterback? I don't think that would be a problem, bro. Honestly, um, and I, that's not to say. That I don't, I don't think that Boston has some some, some deep seated systemic issues around race and racism because the way that they treated Bill Russell and he was the greatest winner of all time in any sport and they broke into his house took a dump on his bed and smeared the feces to say the n word in his home. Like, if they did that to him, bruh, <laughs> ain't no other uh, uh, athlete shit to them. Mm. So, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying we're in a place right now where um, 
athletes are not going to be attacked. Or I'll put it like this. At the, the, the level of tolerance for athletes being attacked, especially black athletes being attacked in this climate, will not be tolerated. Uh, I think there was a reason why the story about Tory Hunter came out. And I would have more issues as a baseball player um, playing in in Boston than I would in being a black football player playing in Foxborough. And I think there are some, again, historical elements that come to come to play with baseball as, a, as opposed to football. So – I think Cam is going to be good. Cam is going to keep his nose clean. Cam is going to keep his head down, focus on the work, come in, be professional, and do his thing. He's going to wear some garish and sometimes gaudy outfits that people are going to clown him for. Garish and gaudy. Absolutely. But he's going to get it done. And when he does get it done, you will see teams clamoring for him in a sweepstakes to get his services next year. I'll take that. Uh, I do. Be, I do believe that Cam is a professional. I mean, outside of um, people talking about his attire, the last time he was in the news for anything crazy, I think he had. A, he was in a car accident, and it wasn't even his fault. Right. Like he, um, you know, he's a good fellow. He's a good brother. Shout out to Atlanta. Yeah, I mean, and and the reality is, he's going to be in a situation where it's uncomfortable. And so his focus, I mean, he's already in a transition and he already kind of saw this coming over the last season. If you heard, he didn't really make a lot of comments, but you can kind of read the tea leaves. And so I think it's one of those things where he knew that if he continued playing football, which he didn't have to do, he's made enough money, uh, that he would have to uh, prove himself. And to uh, going back to your original point, Des, to show that, you know, the Russell Wilsons, Pat Mahomes, um, you know, the, uh, you know, these guys have not surpassed him so much that he's become superfluous. And so with that, I think his, his focus. Or is anachronistic. Or anachronistic. Or anachronistic. Yeah. Anachronistic. Man, where's my sound effects when you need them? You know, Dez, like, the, you know, I said I, I said a few syllable words, so he had to add on some syllables, you know. Uh, don't start, man. So I, I don't That's know if y'all big bang take little bang. So I don't know if y'all seen uh so over the weekend or so last week, uh brother named Charlie Mack, who was uh, Will Smith's first security, they had a, a podcast with Je- DJ Jazzy Jeff, Will Smith, and Charlie Mack. And uh the, the conversation was whenever they I said they was with Brian Gumble and Brian Gumble asked him, Do they think that uh they'll be doing hip-hop um, in perpetuity. And DJ Jazzy said, uh, they have a thing called mayonnaise words. So you got to bring it down a few syllables. Uh, so y'all definitely was above mayonnaise. Y'all was in like the Dijon mustard. <laughs> that <laughs> really great <laughs> Man, man oh, can't believe it's not Butterface Dez. Boy. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, okay, Mr. Pollen is all fruit, sir. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so as we get into this week's topic, uh, I wanted to ask you guys a question. As we challenge the system to write its course, what things will our communities need to detox from um, in its current state of drunk? That's a really good point. Um, Honestly, I don't think that we can get a full glimpse of what we need to completely divorce ourselves from until we reach some semblance of liberation 
tangible liberation in the society. And the reason I say that is because it's just like any toxic relationship. You don't know all the things you need to heal from until you are physically and emotionally distanced from the person who's been abusive. And because we're in this, you know, four centuries long abusive and toxic relationship with the United States of America and, and her white citizens, I don't think we can ever fully come to grips with taking a full inventory of all the different ways that we have uh, been imbued with white supremacy and our own inferiority until we reach some semblance of real liberation. So nothing? No, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say nothing. I and, and thank you for redirecting because obviously there are things we can point to. There are things we can see. There are things that we know that have affected us and have vitiated our ability to evaluate ourselves because of the white gaze. So we know that this idea that uh, uh, so we know that respectability politics is something that we need to divorce ourselves from. We know that, you know, looking at brothers going around marching in suits because they want to change the narrative is complete and utter bullshit and a canard because, you know, I can name five to 10 black Americans who have checked every box in the respectability politics, you know, uh, uh, stat sheet and they were still hated and abhorred by the white masses. So that's not it. Um, but at the same time, understanding that looking at how little we regard our own lives within each other, within our own groups, that is something that was taught. That is something that is learned. Like there's something very real about what Jay said when he said, you know, y'all killed X and let Zimmerman live. And it was so profound because dudes didn't have a problem. And I, 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 you look at, at any major city in America, dudes do not have a problem knocking another dude, another brother off. If he crosses a certain line, you, you're, you're good as dead. But there are certain people who represents the structure of white supremacy where these same dealers and killers will operate and fit neatly into the box and never cross that line. Yeah, like, um, not to get off subject, and that's why I was actually so surprised that when they started uh, tearing up Atlanta, they actually went to Buckhead. Because normally, right. normally they stay, you know, they're trained to stay in their neighborhood. Right. Um, they didn't make it to Cobb, though. <laughs> oh, man. That would be a whole... That would be a whole other situation. Yeah, they they kind of know where to <laughs> get in where you fit in type of situation. <laughs> right. And then there are some factors with Atlanta and Atlanta Police Department that make it a little bit more unique than other cities. Um, but even though they went into analytics, it, it still, I mean, that actually that actually evoked even more consternation from the bougie black masses like they were even more frustrated and upset and hurt like y'all burning down masses buildings yeah I, I watched it on live and I wasn't I wasn't necessarily concerned about the buildings or any of that I was concerned about my brothers and sisters lives I was in the street just knowing that right. 
you know, it ain't easy to get back to the south side from Buckhead. So, um, nope. you know what I mean? You got to be, you got to move properly. So that was more of my concern than anything. No doubt. No doubt. I mean, and, we, and when, you, when you think about it, we're in a city that tears down buildings every day. Every oh, day. Bruh, bruh, say that. So, How many I'm, housing projects used to exist in, in Atlanta pre-2000, pre-96? I mean, if, if you just drive down uh, Piedmont, if you just drive down Cortland, if you just drive down Monroe and uh, Slash Boulevard, you know, if you if you drive down any of these places, uh, last year they didn't look the same. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I think that when we start, when we, you know, kind of getting back to your question, I think what Des was saying was instructive here. You know, how much of it is that the the our environment, these institutions, the laws, the statutes, how much of those things are influencing us along with the culture to where we're merely responding out of survival? And I think that's part of the that's part of where I kind of wonder if I actually can accept the premise of the question um, as there being some type of uh, drunkenness or some type of um, and I'm not I mean maybe, maybe you're not saying this but it comes off across this way as if there is some type of pathology to address. So so let me let me say it like this. So as a man thinketh, so is he. And right now, as you said, and Des said, there's almost like we're in a survival mode. Um, so we're trying to get through the day. We're not thinking about next week. We're not thinking about next month. Um, we're thinking about right now. Um, but at the same time, uh, we are trying to write a ship um, that has only allowed us to act or created an environment for us to act in a certain way. However, once this ship is right, uh, we now need to change the way we think so that we don't get back to where we used to be. Um, we're going to need community involvement. We're going to need to be policing ourselves. We're going to need to be thinking about life insurance. We're going to need to be thinking about long-term health, eating, exercise. Like we, like I think we, when I say drunkenness, not saying that we are intoxicated um, by um, actual liquor, but just our mind, our, our state of being has been altered for so long that I mean, we know we know that in the right situations we prosper, right? So, we know so that that the cream rises to the top, and I believe that we are the cream. However, some of us enjoy being in the dirt and in the mud. Um, some of us aren't going to want to go to the school board meetings and some of us aren't going to want to go to the city hall meetings and but all of that is going to be needed for us to stand upright. Yeah, so, but those aren't those aren't strictly black things though. Yeah, yeah. You get yeah, that, that's right? Those are like like Ibram Kendi says this best. There's a difference between behaviors and culture. Culture right. is uh, is 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 your music, your food, it is your shared uh, mores, but behaviors are things like smoking, things like watching basketball, things like sports, things like playing space. That's that's behaviors. And we have one of the most insidious aspects of white supremacy is to in, 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 in 
is, is to deceive us into thinking that systematic issues only happen within black communities. I guarantee you that if you took a cross-section around, around class and race for every ethnicity, they run into the same issues at the same class level. You think working class white folks is, 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 is piling up in PTA meetings in their schools? You think working class Filipino immigrants are piling up PTA meetings? No, they're trying to survive because the majority of Americans today are so busy trying to survive that they spend half of their days working or sleeping. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and I will um, also, you know, kind of extend that point because I, I literally posted a quote from Ibram Kendi today from his book, How to Be, Ra- be Anti-Racist, How to Be an Anti-Racist. And uh, I, I got the most interesting response from, from a lady who considers herself to be pro-Black. And so the quote was, every time someone racializes behavior, um, which he terms describes something as Black behavior, they are expressing a racist idea. To be an anti-racist is to recognize there is no such thing as racial behavior. To be an anti-racist is to recognize there is no such thing as black behavior, let alone irresponsible black behavior. Black behavior is as fictitious as black genes. So I posted as a caption, don't don't pathologize blackness. And her response was, I'm trying to be as generous as possible. I will say that it was not focused on the actual quote itself or my caption. And she commenced by uh, commenced with saying there is little true to every stereotype and that people who support this mindset are basically saying the same are, are basically the same people who say I don't see color, which is counterproductive. And there, it's certain characteristics that black people have just as Asian or white, and we should champion people to recognize that, but also feel they are no better or less because of it. And I, I couldn't disagree more profoundly. Like it's, it, it's, I, I just think that, and that's why I wanted to ask you about your question a little bit more, because I think that there's a slippery slope when we start to accept things as being exclusively black. And I think even like, even with her answer being, you know, she's thinking that she's saying, oh, yes, we do own certain things as black people. And I can only even speaking from my experiences, know that growing up out west, going to school in the south, and then even living the difference between living in Alabama versus living in Atlanta, Georgia, has been completely different experiences as far as like black people and you know what we do and what we like and all these other things that I, I mean I just I, I just don't see other people being pathologi- pathologized in this way and I think it has a lot to do with the foundational aspect of anti-blackness to American way of life. I get what you guys are saying. I, I really feel like you know you guys are definitely on a, on a on a high level. Uh, I agree. There are no behaviors. I mean, pretty much everything that we learned, we've learned from master, right? Um, But there's an accountability piece to fixing and writing the ship in our own neighborhoods that comes along with asking them to write the ship um, that they've created. And so I was more concerned um, with it from that perspective. Because when I look at uh, the murder rate, right, I think Blacks 
account for about 50% of the MERS um, in the U.S., um, but we're only 13% of the population. Mm-hmm. So it's like... Do you, yeah. you see the breakdown that I, that I posted by Michael Harriet about that? I did not. Was that on Facebook? Yeah. Uh, well, he he made it on Twitter, but I I, I made it for Facebook because. How, how did you post this on Facebook? Right, ain't you in jail? <laughs> this was before I went to jail. Oh my hey, bad, I'm my gonna, bad, man. I'm gonna need y'all to stop for you to try to come in for me, okay? <laughs> I see y'all trying to come for me, but don't even do it, brother. We put money on your books and everything. Like, come on, man. <laughs> you got you got honey book. buns because of us, Des. I ain't said a dime on my books. <laughs> Somebody got you, bro, because I swear on my account it said honey bun. Right. Two ninety nine. No, it didn't. It didn't. I don't got no cigarettes or nothing. But no, back to the point though, uh, Corey. This is the this is the issue. The very fact that we think that parental involvement in PTAs and schools is more important than the systemic structure of tying real estate values to school funding is part and parcel to the problem of why some schools get left behind and students get left behind and students because if if schools operated properly parents shouldn't have to fill up and pack auditoriums at pta nights every three months because there are a number of other facilities that operate well and with due diligence where parents don't have to show up and pack up uh, auditoriums in order to make sure and hold these people accountable to do the right thing for their children. Like you, you never heard of a daycare center having parents pack up at a single, at a single day at a single time to make sure that the childcare providers aren't uh, slamming kids heads on desks or making sure that kids are able to, you know, use the bathroom at pro at appropriate times and that the kids aren't watching porn for movie time. You don't have to do that. And the same thing exists when it comes to education. You don't have to have all the parents pack up an auditorium just to make sure that no child is being left behind. These things take place at a much deeper structural level. These things take place much more broadly than whether or not an individual parent shows up at PTA night. I would also add that our understanding of racism and white supremacy and anti-blackness, I think um, with kind of paralleling the Black Lives Matter, the, the movement for black lives, I think has really accelerated quite a bit. We've got more mainstream anti-racist intellectuals, educators, so on and so forth. And I'm not talking about like the uh, Tim Wise folks or the Robin DeAngelo's. I'm talking about black people being accepted as the experts on this stuff, right? And one of the things that I have taken from this is there seems to be a consensus or an agreement that it's not about like racism is not about the hatred in anyone's heart, right? Uh, and that being multiplied times, however many hundreds of millions of white people. It's about how institutions and laws affect and inform 
what it is that we do and what it is that we see. And so I've literally had conversations where people said, well, look, if, if black people were so good, so to speak, right? If black people are so good, then um, why is it that more the that most people in jail and prison are black people? <laughs> and when he said that, I'm like, dude, I, you know, I, I've already had this understanding and then paired with the scholarship that I'm able to consume from folks like Ibram Kendi, right? Now I understand that, no, this is, this is really reinforcing, uh, not just reinforcing, it's starting and reinforcing uh, the ideas and ideals that lead to people saying, hey, look, there's something wrong with black people in that, A, we need to build a society that accounts for that and that makes sure that they don't go too crazy uh, but B, that we also need to help them and save them. And so that's kind of where I'm like, I, I think that we kind of have to shatter whatever it is from the opinion standpoint that there's something specifically wrong with us. And I'm sure that we could all agree that the difference between the uh, response of the state when it comes to opioid addiction versus, versus crack, I mean, those are just night and day why you know that we see the same we see videos of white men stealing tasers and even guns from police officers while they're being under arrest and you know it's crazy so, so i was watching this before and at one point i commented i said man it's crazy how many officers show up when they're arresting a black guy versus <laughs> you know it's it, it seems to be like one-on-one -on -one when you see these videos when they're arresting a white guy and when we see the difference in response, you know, my question is always why? And I don't know that it has to do with any particular behaviors as much as like, if you treat people like animals and put them in a cage, that's how they're going to. Yeah. That's an interesting point that you brought up. Cause um, I don't care about how you feel about me. I actually care about how you treat me. And you know, with racism, it, people think that it's like, Oh, you know, people are, specifically saying oh we're going to target these black people but the institution of it allows us to be targeted allows us to be killed um and no one says anything and people thinking that you know it's just a coincidence i i do think to your point corey that responsibility and accountability can't be things that are left out of our conversation but i also don't believe that they are and right. we see so many different instances of stop the violence or, you know, save ourselves or, you know, all the different types of conversations that we have both formally and informally, whether it's through some type of assembly or protest or rally, or whether it's through people posting on Facebook and, and Twitter. So I'm not as concerned with that because I do believe that there are more folks that are concerned. I mean, I, even when, when I was at these protests, I would see black men, surprisingly, stepping up and policing other folks to make sure that they didn't take a position of violence, that mm -hmm. they weren't throwing things, that they were not breaking windows, that they were not, you know, whatever. And, and you saw, what I saw a lot of times was, you know, the white boys coming in and the ones starting. So they're like, people are aware of how we are perceived. I do believe deep in my heart that the issue lies within the halls of power and closer to the people that have 
access to power or who are vying for access to power and they are doing whatever is necessary to maintain a seat of power. And I think that's where we could probably focus a little bit more energy and effort as far as talking about accountability and responsibility because a lot of these, you know, well, well I consider, you know, bougie middle-class Negroes, you know, uh, I mean, this whole thing that came out about Van Jones today, you know, I, oh. I felt like, I felt like it's, a, it's, a, it's a fair question. Like, you know, if these are your friends, and, you know, I mean, apparently he did have a response that said that, you know, he wasn't, you know, in the White House and whatever. And we can parse that however we want to go. But to keep it general, if these are your friends, how are you policing your friends? You know, how are you holding their feet to the fire? Man, Jones said, I wasn't tap dancing in the White House. I was tap dancing out of it. <laughs> and so, you know, and, and, being, and, and, you know, with all fairness to him, I'll even zoom out a little bit further. It, there's always been a question. The reason why we say listen to black women is because there's always been a question with black men. Do you want more power or do you want liberation? Do you want power? Or do you want liberation? That's always Bingo. the question with black men. Always. Yep. Because black men typically seek equal, equal power with white men. Yes. And equal power with white men is not the same as liberation. It's not. It just means now you're in control. And that's probably why, you know, Terry Crews could say something like, if we go too far, there'll be black supremacy. It's like, no, it, you're not, you're going in the wrong direction if it ever ends up being quote unquote black supremacy. Because what we right. see as far as black liberation, if we take care of the most vulnerable populations, that's freedom for everyone. Right. Absolutely. So right. now, you know, it's interesting because if, as we talk about the halls of power, I mean, there, was, there were a couple of things that really surfaced or maybe I guess a proper term is resurfaced um, in the last week since, since we last got together. And I mean, one of those things was the uh, Cards Against Humanity thing. And, and Des, Ooh. I mean, may, maybe you could talk Bruh. a little bit about that. Because if we're talking about Shoot. behaviors and if we're talking right. about, you know, how black people act within white, the, the halls of power um, where white He's people are talking with his hands, Des. <laughs> I mean, Des. What, so, what do you got? What happened? And what's your what's your initial take on it? All right. So, um, there was uh, a couple of days ago. There was a gentleman who was, I believe, the only or one of the only uh, black writers who wrote on the staff for Cards Against Humanity. For those who don't know, Cards Against Humanity is a very popular card game that adults play with a lot of naughty humor um it is supposed to be this sarcastic edgy irreverent game that plays on a lot of tropes and stereotypes but does so in a very fun casually racist way um so this gentleman actually shared his story and his story was actually a lot more a lot more frightening than a jordan peele screenplay because this gentleman and being on in, on this staff in this writer's room, whenever there was a topic brought up about, not just about race, but about blackness, they would filter it through him so that they could use him as the shield to say, if they ever caught any flag for those decisions, they could say, hey, we have a black writer on staff who reviewed this and he said it was okay. And 
during the amount of time that he was absorbing a lot of the myriad of microaggressions within the organization, um, he did go through a self-described uh, bout of, of, of mental illness. And during that time, the leaders of the organization used that as an opportunity to have him committed. And yeah. they, they stepped over all kinds of boundaries because they contacted his family members. They reached out to them to try to leverage them and ultimately were able to get him committed into a behavioral health facility against his will. Now, wow. for those who are the uninitiated, the only way for a, an adult to be admitted into a behavioral health facility against their will is if they show signs of Hurting suicidal ideation or homicidal tendencies. So they have to, have to show a willingness to hurt themselves or others. And that's the only time that somebody can be in, admitted against their will. This brother had done no such thing. And he was actually admitted for a period of about a week. Uh, after that point in time, he tried to get back to work. And even during that time, uh, the, the leaders within the organization basically engaged in all manner of passive aggression to backstab and fire him from the organization. So there was a point where he wanted to resign for the organization. They begged him not to resign. And once he rescinded his resignation, they fired him. And I think it goes to show it's, it's, it's a, it's sort of a, like a Rorschach test of black people's experiences within corporate America, because I know that I can attest to many of those same experiences. And I'm sure a lot of my black peers can do the same. But I think in particular, one of the reasons why Joshua wanted to bring this up is because his example speaks to just how unsafe we are, even amongst the so-called liberal white progressive folks who quote unquote get it and quote unquote think that they're woke because they're not Southern, because they're not inbred, because they're not poor, because they went to a liberal arts college, because they are educated, quote unquote, in good schools, and because they are not like those other white folks. And and actually, this is actually something that Robin, Dr. Robin D'Angelo speaks about, who is the author of White Fragility. She said that actually, White liberals ha have a much more damage that they can do to people of color than white conservatives because white liberals actually thrive on having close relationships with people of color, unlike white conservatives. And I think that underscores some of the points that Joshua wanted to make, which are we are not safe even among those who consider themselves allies. Absolutely. And then also on top of that, kind of going back to what you were saying, is that this is a literal example of we have no idea how much of this white supremacy and anti-blackness and the structures of racism are actually affecting us, right? Like they right, literally put this man in a situation where he was in the crazy house. 
Right. And that's the crazy part about it. I don't use crazy. I'm sorry. I have to stop myself. And I have to correct myself. Yeah, I I, I, I thought about that as soon as I said it, man. Yeah, yeah, because it is ableist to describe a thing as crazy. Yeah. Um, And I don't want to do that. I want to acknowledge that. I want to acknowledge the fact that I was wrong to use that kind of language. Same. So what I'm saying is it is incredibly harmful and, and, and problematic in that type of a situation because this mental, this behavioral health facility actually believed the word of two white people over the words of in a fully formed adult black man. Like think about how, how powerful that is that these white people were able to influence a behavioral health facility that this black adult who was able to take care of himself for decades by himself and on his own, that he needed to be admitted into a behavioral health facility. And think about how much societal power that even marginal and mediocre white people possess and wield wield on a daily basis, i.e. Amy Cooper. But, you know, they just hang behind, they voted for Obama. Yeah, I would have voted for him a third term, just like on Get Out, right? So if, sorry, if you don't mind, so I, I wanted to uh, actually read a quote from uh, Nicholas Carter, who is the black writer who was uh, institutionalized. Right. And one of the things in his essay he said was the state of being an employee has extended beyond the workplace. We are all employees in and out of our jobs, regardless of the occupation. And so one of the things that he pointed to was, you know, kind of bridging the gap, I think, between Corey, what you were saying and what Desmond's saying is that, you know, comedians and I think by and large, he can say, you know, he's actually asserting that we all uh, really just want to be able to do what we love and we want right. to pay for it, be able to take care of, you know, life and whatever. And he said, it seems innocent. But what it means is that we don't give a shit who's paying us as long as we're getting paid. And he said, I know because I was one of those people. And so I think mm-hmm. it, it talks to, it speaks to how society definitely indoctrinates us and really informs our view of ourselves to where we believe our own story that we're really in control. But again, you know, kind of going back to, his essay who is an artist who can't criticize their bosses and what's a writer who can't say what they really think so are we really in control right and i think and who's that's a, a, who's a satirist who can't criticize the society when trying to reconcile differences it's very important that both parties see the problem the same way because if two people are looking at the same thing but perceiving them so differently they are speaking under a different stimulus mm. I mean, that's interesting to me because I think that's the reason you end up with violent revolutions. Because you're talking to somebody, you're trying to reason with unreasonable people. You're trying to, you're, you're trying to, to talk through the facts with people who don't have any facts other than I'm superior and that this is owed to me and that you should be subjugated to me. And I think that even if we look at more, uh, racially homogenous societies. So for instance, going back to like a lot of socialists, Marxists, whatever, go back to the French revolution, right? Even then, like there's still, even, even if you're only looking at it through class, 
in a in a in a situation where there's uh, you know extreme class differences in power differentials, people are still like, yeah, yeah, you know, whatever. What what do we need to do in order to make you shut up, basically? And I think that's kind of where where we where we are. We're not engaging as equals because these folks don't see us as humans. Right. If racism was going tomorrow, we would still have classism. Absolutely. And that's the thing is like you and this is this goes this harkens back to a quote from James Baldwin. He says, "You think that your pain is unique in the world, and then you begin reading, and it allows you to see that that the oppression." has many forms and it and it operates by the same sheet of music even though it has many forms it does operate by the same sheet of music because there are <laughs> so the oppression that we experience today as black people as black males as black cis hetero males uh was also felt by uh, European immigrants who were laborers under the capitalist society over a hundred years ago during the uh, industrial revolution and they sought a way to make the gains that their capitalist founders and leaders were making and those demands were met with violent retribution by uh, the police forces that they had newly minted so uh, we can look at the relationship between black men and black women and also understand that that's not unique for Latino men and Latino women to understand the dynamics of a state that is belligerently uh, draconian, much like a Nazi regime, regime is one that has also been and has taken notes from the United States of America, uh, that it was very quite certain that at the same time during the 1936 Olympics, the United States was championing Jesse Owens as, as the harbinger of racial equality and justice in uh, Nazi Germany, while at the same time, he was not allowed to visit the White House e even after he came home and returned with three gold medals. And the, and the Fuhrer actually invited him to his palace before the then president invited Jesse Owens to his, to his palace. And to look at the juxtaposition of those in power and those who aren't, and the ways in which those who are in power justify their, not only their power, but their ability to render cruelty and oppression against those who don't have power are things that have been universal across millennia. So that's what we begin to understand as we dig deeper and learn. And it can seem kind of melancholy when you really dig deeper into it because you see for centuries and for millennia, people have shitted on people again and again and again and again in different ways. Uh, and it can really make you lose your faith in humanity until you begin to focus on the stories of people who resist of people who organize, of people who, who build these uh, multi-ethnic, multilingual, multi-gender coalitions. And you're able to see that people can bridge gaps across all different types of sociological divides. And I'm sorry for yeah. waxing on the side just now. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was good. And I, I was just going to add to that, you know, kind of to put a bow on this whole thing. 
is that uh, Nicholas Carter, what, what he said kind of to end his essay was, I thought, very powerful, and it might have been uh, the most powerful part of his essay. And, and he just asked, I wonder what would happen if the funniest, most persuasive people in the country stopped acting like it doesn't matter who we work for or what we say, or that they mm. do, or that what we do as comedians matters so much. Maybe not as many mm. people would die. Maybe some of the kids wouldn't suffer as much. And maybe some truly important ideas would be argued for convincingly. My point is that we shouldn't have to all play along. I was mad, still am, and you should be too. And I thought that was very interesting because I firmly believe that it's not just the news media organizations that are uh, a part of manufacturing consent here. And uh, it's also all of the cultural cues, for instance, such as a Cards Against Humanity, or as what's resurfaced over the last week is the overt racism of Barstool Sports. And, you know, just uh, as, a, as a quick note here, uh, Oxford Reference uh, says that uh, manufacture of consent is a phrase originally coined in 1922 by American journalist Walter Lippmann to refer to the management of public opinion which he felt mm. was necessary for democracy to flourish since he felt mm. that public opinion was an irrational force. And so I mm. think this kind of underscores what we're talking about from a behavioral standpoint is that we don't really know all of the different forces that are antagonizing us and gaslighting us to basically stay in our place. And Noam Chomsky mm -hmm. actually uh, wrote a book called Manufacturing Consent. And it's interesting because when I think about the response from, uh, he, call, he calls himself Presidente Dave Portnoy at Barstool Sports. When I think about his response, it was very much defiant. And it was very much a, like a fuck you, right? He says, uh, you know, I can't be canceled. I cancel you. You know, I can't be canceled. Go cancel somebody else. I've been doing this two decades. Hey, look, we've been doing this and things change and so what, you know, and it's just kind of like, I'm sorry, guys, I have no other way to say it, but entitled white boy, you know, that's exactly what it looks like to me. And it's, and it's like, look, you don't care that what you're saying has real impact on real lives, that it really hurts people. You don't care. You, you and, and you couldn't be bothered to care. And, you know, if we're just to catch people up, if they're not familiar with the Barstool Sports incident. Well, it's really not one incident, it's incidents. And uh, one, one segment resurfaced uh, from, I guess, what would have been his flagship show, including uh, him and a couple, other, a couple of his main guys, where he said that he, well, he acknowledged that he was going to say something racist, and he said that Colin Kaepernick looked like an ISIS guy. <laughs> and now and all he, he had to do was put on a head wrap and he looked like a, a Bin Laden. Yeah, and, and then he and posted then, the picture. And then he posted the picture. Right? And that was in 2016 at the like, you know, at the very beginning of Kaepernick kneeling. And he says that anybody who disagrees with him looks like Bin Laden. And so uh that uh Cap looks like Bin Laden is a moron. And so I'm I'm watching these videos and they have more. They have videos of like, I guess it was a company Halloween party where uh, they, they, they call each other these like generic names. That's kind of the thing at Barstool Sports. So sales guy shows up in blackface with two black people 
and he is Kevin Garnett, and these are Kevin Garnett's friends. And so they say, well, you know, he and his and his uh, co-host say, hey, look, I guess you could show up in blackface as long as you have uh, your black friends with you. You just better keep them on a short leash. Ugh. It's so... <laughs> You know, I mean, is this, I mean, this is like the same thing that people were asking about Cards Against Humanity. Is this comedy? Is this satire? Why are you using your leverage and punching down? You know, like, I mean, what, Corey, I mean, what are, what are you thinking? What did you think when you actually saw this? I mean, it's disheartening, right? I don't think blackface at any point um, is funny. Um, there are passes, uh, I guess, when it relates to uh, telling a story, acting, uh, but it's, it's disheartening. But just tell me how you really feel. And uh, once you tell me, I'm going to believe you. So at this point, I can no longer support uh, Barstool. Um, and, and I was looking for a statement today from their number one Black program, uh, Million Dollars Worth of Game Show, which is uh, Wallow and Gilly the Kid. And I have yet. Hmm. It, it seems like to me, it goes back to what Nicholas Carter was saying, that we we see these folks that are doing their thing and <laughs> let's be clear barstool sports is at this point an institution they have in a, in a very interesting place in culture and in society uh, i think similar to like joe rogan i think similar to like these cards against humanity folks where they are you know the the thing is uh ironic twitter if if that's what you can boil it down to a simplistic concept right it's that you know it's edgy geek culture uh you know it's people are saying things that they're, they're being transgressive in a way because they're saying things that you're really not supposed to say and oops i hope mom didn't hear this type of thing and the internet the way that it's grown has provided many different places and opportunities for these folks to kind of carve out their own niche where you can get really big, but still not necessarily be mainstream. But we wonder where all of these different ideas are reinforced and, and you know, just straight up just sent out. And I mean, I, I've looked into this from the aspect of Donald Trump and, you know, kind of their whole propaganda machine. And a lot of it actually has nothing to do with him. Uh, so a lot of the stuff we give Donald Trump credit for actually comes from a, a far right place. I saw one where there's this guy, uh, he has a Facebook live show that he does where they literally people submit different things to him. And he also, you know, kind of has this feedback loop where they talk up the talking points of the day. And it's interesting when you see the economy of this because it some kind of way makes itself to Breitbart, which some kind of way makes itself to, uh, makes its way to Fox News, which Trump is watching Fox News, and then he regurgitates that, and then it makes it back to Fox News. And then, you know, some in some place there's Facebook and all the memes and the groups and all this other stuff. And... I see this the same way from these guys who say, hey, I donate millions of dollars to liberal causes. You know, I rock with the Democrats and all these other things. Well, you know, for me, a black man, I'm looking at this. I'm like, I can't tell the difference between you guys because right. in your own way, you in your own style, you are reinforcing that I am not human. And that, I'm, I mean, look, there's no way that this dude, Dan, 
uh, is saying these things about his friends. Mm-hmm. You know, it's always like, yeah, we make fun of everybody. Yeah, you make fun of all vulnerable populations because you don't give a shit about it. But I think that also underscores why whiteness cannot be looked at as a valid uh, culture the same way that blackness can be. Because whiteness was only created to juxtapose blackness. Whiteness was only created to make blackness be inferior to itself. And it did so because even at its core, whiteness is about purity. So even when you look at the quote-unquote woke white folks or the liberal progressive white folks who still have tons of problematic natures about themselves, uh, they have issues because even among themselves, white people still look for a way to cull the herd. And this is something that has happened since, you know, uh, uh, Eastern Europeans started flocking to our shores uh, over a hundred years ago, because at that time, the Slavics were not considered white. The Russians were not considered white. Italians were not considered white. Grecians were not, the Greeks were not considered white. Um, and over time, the Irish were not considered white. And over time, they earned their whiteness by their ability to push down and punch down on blackness. So understanding how whiteness operates, whiteness always looks for a way to be, to, to, it looks for a purity test. And their purity test for people who lack empathy is the ability to shit on people but hide behind it as humor. Right, right. In in ways that we just would not find funny in any other context. You, you, but in their you, minds, yeah, go ahead. No, well, I was just going to say that that's that's what I think is, is the whole point, right? They've carved out a place in society that 20 years ago, there was no place in society uh, for this because everybody was watching like well even if we rewind 30 years ago right everybody's watching the same news you know everybody has you know same channels this was the uh when cable first came out right and so you know within five years maybe you had i I don't know were there even 100 channels within the first five years i don't i don't believe so Uh, no it was still at the point where everybody consumed the same stuff and so michael jackson's trying to get on mtv you know and that that is definitely not the environment we're in now. You can have millions right. upon millions of followers and and still not necessarily be known, but the impact be felt because those millions of followers carry and harbor these resentments. They carry and harbor these feelings. They carry and harbor and perpetuate the racism that's spewed in these corners of the internet. Right. Back to your previous point, forty five is not uh, responsible for the racism. But that's exactly why he's in the office. Yeah, I mean, look, it's easy. It's always easy for white people. Um, I, I, I'm going to mess this up. I can't. I think it was at the uh, University of Missouri, uh, where they had the white kid on the bus, where he was singing their um, their fraternity song a few years ago. You guys? Oh remember? yeah. Was it Missouri? Yeah. I'm not sure if it was Missouri. I think it was Missouri. Okay. Well. Um, even if that part is wrong, the point still stands that this white kid is singing the fraternity song and super racist. I believe there were some, you know, some, some niggers in there or whatever. Right. Right. There'll never be an end in this, in in Alpha Chi or something. Yeah. And so, so the, the point is though, that instead of them, 
there being a reckoning with that fraternity, they single this guy out. And I think that's what Donald Trump represents. He is everything that these folks want to say but can't say. Mm. And if there's anything, whether that's, you know, from the, you know, radical right or from the liberal left, if there's anybody that says, hey, look, you know, this is wrong, he's the embodiment of that. And then they can just say it's all his fault and keep going about business as usual. And I think that's going back to what you're talking about as far as whiteness, right? That's that's the thing. It's that it, it continuously morphs, continues past the buck, never takes on the responsibility or whatever. And, and it's not, uh, there's no self audit on whiteness. It requires, right. you know, and that's what I was saying about the quote, Corey, is that it requires some agitation to say this is not right. And then there has to be enough agitation for folks to pay attention because the dominant culture is like, well, what do you mean it's not right? This is what we said it is. And they're so used to naming things and, you know, taking responsibility here and taking ownership there. And it's like, you don't exist outside of us. And that's the, I think that's the tension in the streets still right now. Yeah, it, it reminds me of an abusive relationship. It's like, yeah, um, you know, you're kicking my ass. However, I'm supposed to look at the good things because you're clothing me and feeding me. Like, really? So when we further look at, you know, ironic, ironic Twitter, ironic humor and all, that's what they call it. And they're like, why do you take this so seriously? And that's why I thought it was necessary to connect the whole the whole trump thing to this because yeah. whenever he says something crazy all of his supporters say well he's just joking and to separate trump from you know liberal white boys <laughs> i think is a mistake and i think mm -hmm. that you know you you're always we there are a lot of different ways to analyze this so in this in this vox article about cards against humanity and ironic humor slash racism right they said he said that in practice in, that implied racism often leads players to indulge in their worst impulses leading easily <laughs> to jokes that demonstrate overt racism and which can occasionally turn real life genocide into the butt of the joke so there is a card that I don't believe exists anymore where it's talking about uh, uh, helplessly giggling at the mention of the Hutus and the Tutsis. We're talking about Rwandan genocide, man. That's, you know, and I, I'll be honest, I bought the game and I thought this is a game, you know, and over the last several years, I'm like, maybe this is a game that we don't play. And after reading this, I'm like, maybe this is a game I need to throw out. Because what we're like, you know, how are we, you know, divorcing ourselves? And so one of the things going back to that article, he said, the reason that the game's design didn't create an immediate clusterfuck when it launched largely had to do with the message and appearance of the company itself, founded by eight male white liberal high school buddies from Chicago. And it was born out of what we think of as the peak of ironic comedy culture, such as South Park and Big Bang Theory. And it's always sunny in Philadelphia, the hangover, super bad, you know. And so there's there's all these things. And I mean, and really what we're talking about is Internet culture. Right. There's this thing that, you know, it's satire. Everything is, you know, supposedly satire and it's regarded as a, the sincerest form of comedy which I think that when we're looking at this stuff, it has a lot to do with 
the decadence and degradation that we're seeing in society right now. There is truth in a joke. Um, whenever someone is joking, they are actually disguising thoughts and emotions subconsciously or deliberately. I think Sigmund Freud said that a joke is the truth wrapped in a smile, and we're tired of being the butt of the joke. Because to you, it's funny, and to us, it's like I like that. I, I agree with you. I can be on point sometimes. Man, you be on point, man. Stop humble bragging, man. <laughs> if you think about the position of the show that you mentioned at Barstool, right? We're in a position to where it's like, do we play along? Do we laugh at this shit that's not funny? You know, do we say, hey, look, like Nicholas Carter said, you should not be making a card that says the N-word, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, because there are very real consequences for you having some type of sense, some type of moral guide or compass. There's a real impact directly to you, but then you know that there's a real impact for allowing this to be perpetuated. And so, like you said, we're tired of being the butt of the joke. And on that note, final thoughts. My final thought. And my final quote comes from uh, Thomas Fuller. He said, all things are difficult before they are easy. And good things take time. So we are currently in the path right now of a reawakening. Um, maybe this is the new civil rights era. Um, and it's, re it's requiring us to be agitators. And we have to continue that agitation to get the dirt out. So um, let's be tireless. Let's continue to fight. I would leave yet another quote from my esteemed elder, James Baldwin, who said, I love America more than any other country in this world. And exactly for this reason, I insist on the right to criticize her perpetually. And yet I shall. So I feel somewhat unprepared then because Ooh. you guys have quotes. Really? And I'm over here like, okay, well, can I say some fly shit? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> and you know I, I think I'm just gonna triple or quadruple down I don't know how many times I said this but we don't have to play along and what I see is black folks gathering other black folks telling us it's good to play along and that at some point that we can get enough money or get enough power to then flip the game and I just don't see that man I just, I, I don't think that there's a point in history that we can, we can look at to see how we were able to amass enough of their stuff and to play their game well enough where we could flip it on them. Because even when you talk about the, the 99th anniversary of uh, the, the Greenwood Massacre just a few weeks ago, even when you're talking about that, it's like, look, we were just like, look, leave us alone. We'll, we'll be over here. And at some point they still came and they, look, I don't know how you, where you get planes from today, let alone back then when they were first, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Where they had planes that were dropping bombs on, you know, a successful district, not even a city, a successful district of black self-sufficiency. And so I well, think that we, go ahead. I think it, it was like, um, it's like Audre Lorde said, um, the master's tools can never dismantle the master's house. And Thank I you. think that's something we need to be reminded of. Uh, and shout out to black women again, Audre Lorde, man. If you want to learn, Audre Lorde got bars. Um, as he said that, you know, 
play a game, play along to get along so that we can flip the game. I think, I think there's some truth to that, but I think that at some point, once we get along, we no longer want to flip the game. We want to play it the way it's been played. I think and that's, that's the, the point. That's why. Yeah, that's why Audrey Lord says the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house, because once you've been corrupted by materialism and capitalism and the trappings of wealth, you will not want to overthrow the system as it is. You will want to be like Van Jones and write up memos to the very people who hate and despise us and make it seem like it's a compromise. You will be like Booker T. Washington, who, who stands at, uh, in Atlanta at the expo and coins the term separate but, but equal. That is actually codified by the Supreme Court in justifying segregation. You will actually be the tool of your oppressors and not the end of oppression itself. I think that's essential to understand because as if we actually look at anti-blackness and we kind of try to understand everything as a whole, then we can understand that if we're not, if they don't see us as human, what do they see us as? And I think that you hit it on the, on the nail on the head, it does. We are tools. So when you see Democrats and Republicans going back and forth, we're political football. You know, when you see uh, when you see folks like, hey, look, we, we need to build, you know, this, uh, you know, so much economic power that eventually will overtake them. No, no, we won't. Uh, you know, we are objectified in that sense, because at some point we're still a part of the system that is oppressing us. And that's one thing that uh, there's a scholar. I, I'll have to remember his name, but he said that the trick about not just capitalism, but socialism and any of these other uh, economic models that we can follow is that there still it still requires exploitation of labor, and it also mm. requires extraction of mm. resources. Mm. And so, if we're arguing about how to redistribute, we're still playing the master's game and using the master's tools. Mm. But the thing is, the fight has been so difficult that we're like, look, man. Um, you know, actually, we're, we're beyond like, give us a seat at your table, you know, give us our own. We just want to make sure it's all fair and everybody has enough. But the reality is that at some point we have to create something new. That we have right. we need new technologies and new facilities and new mechanisms in order to recognize people as people where we're not exploiting one another. And we're not we're not extracting the resources that we need from the earth and to survive because the earth will survive long beyond far beyond us we keep on telling everybody you know hey look let's save the earth no let's save ourselves <laughs> by treating each other as human beings so maybe that's my final word i don't know Corey, is that acceptable i'll take it thank you for listening hopefully you were enlightened and entertained we ask that you follow milk duds podcast on ig as well as follow us and subscribe on your favorite streaming platforms. Thank you. Enjoy the rest of your week.